Good morning. Good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is William Uricchio. I'm a professor here in um, Comparative Media Studies, and I'm principal investigator of both the Open Documentary Lab and the new co-creation studio. And I'm privileged to have attended and worked on all 10 of the Media in Transition series. This year's conference marks not only the 20th year of Comparative Media Studies, but as well a return to the original theme of the very first conference, uh, organized by Henry Jenkins and David Thorburn, that also turned into a book. So we're back 20 years later. And what a difference 20 years makes. Some of you in the room, at least those of you my age, may remember Napster, America Online, Web 1.0, life before the iPhone. It's almost imaginable. But it doesn't take a lot of imagination to know that this topic, thinking about the media and democracy, is more salient, more important than ever. In order to get things properly started, our dean, Melissa Nobles, will say a few words. The Keenan Sahin Dean of the School of Social Sciences, Humanities, and the Arts. Melissa Nobles is a political scientist who has done much to document the political struggles and history of black Americans. She analyzes some of the fault lines of our time, race and the census, for example, or the reconciliation of race and ethnic injustice. And most recently, a massive ongoing project regarding undocumented uh, racial murders in the American South between 1930 and 1954. It's a remarkable data set that keeps growing year by year, and we really have to find ways to make that more visible as part of our, our cultural presence. This work goes to the core of this nation's political being and reveals the systemic nature of injustice as well as how to come to terms with it. And that's why I'm so grateful that Dean Nobles has found the time to be with us despite the cacophony that is the end of the semester. It's good to have the, have the Dean's blessings and financial support, but it's even better to have a scholar with Melissa's profile to remind us of the fundamental inequalities that challenge our notion of democracy with or without the digital. And at the same time, to call our attention to the maintenance of those inequities in the digital technologies that so many of us in this room study and that so many of us in this room need to repair. So Melissa, uh, welcome. And thank you, and good morning, everyone. I appreciate that generous introduction, and uh, but I'm going to keep my remarks brief in part because I'm here to give the blessings and to learn uh, from all that you all are going to be studying over these next um, uh, two days. So I've had the opportunity. So first, let me just start off by saying, welcome to MIT. Uh, and, um, and I'm sure you're going to make the most of, of, this, of this great um, campus. And I've had the opportunity to review the conference's program. And the panels, as William said, are both extremely interesting and obviously very timely. And as a political scientist, the theme, democracy and digital media, uh, caught my attention in really uh, important ways. Uh, in, as you all know, the theme is at the center of political debate, not only around the world, but also in this country. As Americans are trying to grapple with how to make sense of the relationship between the two, that is, is democracy, however we understand that, and however imperfectly it has existed in the US, how is it undermined or enhanced by digital media. The issues of, are, of course, far more complicated than the binary destruction that my political science training 
uh, reflects, and I expect that this interdisciplinary conference will, over the next few days, uh, delve deeply into this complexity and provocative, insightful, and unexpected ways. So I look forward to uh, hearing about the uh, panels as well as I imagine there's a volume that will come out of this which, uh, which we all uh, benefit from. Um, I want to thank the, I know William intends to, but I also want to take the opportunity now to thank the organizing committee, Lisa Parks, Heather Hendershot, Rachel Thompson, Annie Wayne, Ian Condry, and William Whitfield for their efforts in really putting together a uh, terrific uh, program. I wish you all a productive conference and um, I welcome you again to MIT. Thank you. So thank you, Dean Nobles. And uh, before I hand the microphone over to Ian Condry to get the plenary started, a few more words of thanks. So on behalf of the organizing committee that, uh, that uh, Dean Nobles just named, uh, I'd like to thank first Danny Goldfield, the person who's done so much to organize this event and keep us on budget. Um, oh, thanks. Thanks. thanks to also to our sponsors, uh, the program in uh, Comparative Media Studies and Writing, the Open Documentary Lab, the Global Media Technologies and Cultures Lab, the Departments of History, Political Science, Global Studies and Languages, Literature, Science, Technology, and Society, the Dean's Office in the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, Professor James Paradis, and Microsoft Research. Um, also, I'd like to thank Sultan Sharif for an amazing evening last night. The pre-conference event was uh, yeah, amazing, moving, transformative in, in lots of ways. And it was, I'm grateful to uh, Sultan and the, uh, the speakers, Henry Jenkins, Cornell West, uh, the folks out there. I also want to just mention that we're in a building designed by I.M. Pei, uh, an alum of MIT. Building 66, when you cross the street, the one with the point, is also a Pei building. He's done a number on this campus. And he died yesterday at the ripe old age of 102. Um, but it's, it's nice to be in his space. And last but not least, I want to thank you for being here, especially those of you who've traveled from afar, from Europe, Central and South America, India, China, and points further. Thanks for, your, for suggest, subjecting yourselves to the digital scraping of your fingerprints and iris data in order to cross the border. <laughs> and for helping to make our conversations emphatically global. Thank you very much for being here. All right, thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm Ian Contry. I'm a professor of comparative media studies and uh, writing, as well as an affiliate with the Global Studies and Languages and the Department of Anthropology. Uh, it's my honor and pleasure uh, to help moderate uh, this panel of distinguished guests. Uh, this is the order uh, we're going for the speakers. They've brought some slides, and we'll want to make time for discussion with the audience afterwards. Uh, please allow me to just give a few minutes of brief introduction of our speakers. Huma Youssef is a CMS alum and a global fellow of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She is an award-winning journalist and writes regularly for Pakistan's Dawn newspaper. Huma has published widely on Pakistan's evolving media landscape, including policy reports for organizations such as Open Society Foundations, BBC Media Action, and the United States Institute of Peace. She holds the Pakistan Culture Cast. She hosts, I'm sorry, she hosts the Pakistan Culture Cast, a podcast on Pakistani art, culture, and politics. Please join me in welcoming Huma Yousaf.
David Hesmondal is professor of media, music, and culture in the School of Media and Communications at the University of Leeds. He's the author of The Cultural Industries, the fourth edition of which was published in December 2018. Uh, Culture, Economy, and Politics, The Case of New Labor, published by Paul Grave in 2015 and co-written with Kate Oakley, David Lee, and Melissa Nisbet. Why Music Matters in 2013, Creative Labor uh, in 2011, and he's also editor or co-editor of eight other books, including Media and Society, 6th edition. Until uh, next month, 2019, he is visiting researcher in the Social Media Collective at Microsoft Research New England. Please join me in welcoming David Hesmondahl. Roberta Pearson is professor of film and television studies at the University of Nottingham. Among her most recent publications are the co-authored Star Trek and American Television, 2014, and the co-authored Transatlantic and, uh, Transatlantic and Television Drama uh, from Oxford University Press, 2018. She is in total the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of 14 books, and author or co-author of over 80 journal articles and book chapters. Wow, Roberta Pearson. Last but not least, we have Philip Napoli. He's the James R. Shepley Professor of Public Policy in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. He's also a faculty affiliate with the DeWitt Wallace Center for Media and Democracy. Professor Napoli is the author of the forthcoming book, Social Media and the Public Interest, Media Regulation in the Disinformation Age. And that'll be out with Columbia University in 2019, Philip Napoli. panelists uh, who have a range of expertise, news, music, television, social media, uh, to think about digital transformations and cultural industries. How are changing modes of media altering the relations between producers, distributors, and audience? With what effects? How can we compare these situations in terms of the affordances of different media, different kinds of platforms and media distribution, and different national and cultural settings? And how should this alter how we do media studies. Those are some of the big questions. Uh, hopefully this will set the tone for the discussions uh, that continue throughout the two days we have together. Uh, and we look forward to engaging uh, you, the audience, uh, after each of the individual presentations. Uh, so without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming Huma Yusuf to the stage. Like that. <laughs> um, religious talk shows brought together religious scholars and clerics 
from different sectarian backgrounds, Sunni and Shia, but also from subsects of Sunni Islam, like the Burindis and Deobandis, and invited them to debate religious issues. These shows marked a departure from traditional monolithic religious authority presented on state television to modern, inclusive, discursive Muslim publics, both in the sense of imagined communities and, of course, as audiences. Importantly, these shows emerged after more than a decade of intense sectarian conflict in Pakistan between Sunnis and Shias primarily, um, in which more than 4,000 people were killed. Their attempts to both acknowledge and reconcile sectarian difference struck a chord with audiences. However, from the outset, efforts to create these new Muslim publics were challenged as digital media platforms blurred the distinction between producers and consumers, gatekeepers and participants, and reinforced traditional offline practices. Today, I will argue that the resulting fragmentation of religious authority, identity, and practice has resulted in the desire to produce ever broader Muslim publics. But in their diversity, these cannot possibly articulate what Muslimness is, and so define it in opposition to what it certainly is not, thereby requiring these new publics to occupy increasingly extremist positions. So let me start at the beginning. The religious talk show format when it launched was revolutionary. State-owned Pakistan television in the 1980s and 90s had religious programming, most memorably in the form of a show called Understanding the Quran. This consisted of a traditional senior cleric reading and interpreting Quranic verses and sermonizing for hours in erudite and inaccessible scholarly language. That's him. Talk right. The sermons ignored sectarian differences and divergent religious practice and assumed a monolithic Islamic public sphere, a conflation of audience, nation, and religious community. Religious talk shows on private television channels were almost the opposite. They were pioneered by Dr. Amir Layakat, a self-styled religious scholar who launched a show called Alim <coughs> Online, which translates as Cleric Online, um, and it features on, featured on the top-rated Geo television channel. Leakat was young, handsome, and sported a neatly trimmed beard. He wore fashionable colorful clothes and often moderated discussions from plush armchairs with a tea mug in hand. He emphasized and celebrated the difference of opinion between guests, a mixture of traditional and modern clerics and religious scholars hailing from different Islamic sects and subsects. Layakat's show and the many copycat versions that followed it on numerous television channels signaled a shift from one to many, sermonizing to discursive, serious to entertaining, traditional to modern. And it sought to both acknowledge the multiplicity of Muslim publics and to put them in dialogue with each other. As the name of Layakat's show, Alim Online, gives away, Modernity was a key selling point of these shows. They were interactive. Audiences were encouraged to dial in or text in uh, to ask clerics questions about Islam. The shows had flashy sets, slick graphics, catchy theme music. And as mentioned above, they promoted a new class of young, appealing uh, religious scholars like Leakar, whose religious education was not through the madrasa system, but as Anderson has analyzed, through secular universities, social and political experience, and journeys of personal transformation. Most importantly, these shows signal the shift from traditional interpretive practices and theological debates to discussions about the daily practice of Islam. Can I pray while wearing nail polish? Which bank offers the best services for the payment of zakat, the obligatory Islamic welfare tax? Can my sister inherit an equal share of my father's estate? 
The, the panelists on religious talk shows debated such questions and through each discussion enlivened and highlighted yet more Muslim publics. One of the most interesting aspects of religious talk shows is how deliberate and self-conscious the project of creating these new inclusive and discursive Muslim publics was. Taha Kazi's work describes how production teams carefully vetted and considered which topics could be discussed and also vetted the clerics on panels to ensure a good balance of sectarian representation as well as traditional ulama and modern scholars. The shows were preceded by long discussion sessions between the moderators and participating clerics to ensure the tone of the show that was ultimately broadcast was suitably inclusive and tolerant. Participants were also forced to sign contractual agreements promising not to inflame sectarian intentions or broach controversial issues that might offend the adherents of a particular religious affiliation. Munira Chima's research has focused on how these religious talk shows also sought to create new Muslim publics among female audiences, who of course previously did not have much access to uh, religious authorities. Not only did male-only uh, religious panels, such as those moderated by Ahmed Liaquet, happily discuss issues related to women, uh, whether it was questions about marital obligations, veiling or domestic violence, but other shows like Hawaki Beti, which translates as Daughter of Eve, featured women-only panels with female clerics and legal advisors. This diligent gatekeeping by television producers and the resulting phenomenon of religious talk shows created what Anderson has called, quote, a social space between elite and folk Islam, crucially facilitated by media that feature the migration of discourse from narrower to broader, more public realms. Of course, who participated in the new Muslim publics, both in terms of production and consumption, was largely driven by commercial considerations. Striving for religious inclusion was also a way to guarantee the largest audiences and the highest ratings. Clerics who may offend made to advertisers by critiquing their products, virulent sectarian discourse that may put off audience members from a particular religious community, or an overly authoritative or inflexible position on a religious practice that could drive down ratings were all discouraged. Indeed, religious talk shows attempts to undermine traditional religious authority and create what Kazi has termed uncertainty regarding the authenticity of competing scholarly rulings can be framed as a marketing ploy by casting rulings as perspectives rather than truths and putting them in dialogue with each other producers sought to create ever more inclusive and interactive Muslim publics. This was a pick-and-choose, consumption-driven approach to religious practice aimed at creating the broadest possible audiences. But from the outset, television channels' careful efforts to construct new Muslim publics have been challenged at multiple levels across digital media platforms by both producers and consumers of the new format. Firstly, Religious talk shows' inclusive and democratizing agenda was undermined by content elsewhere on the mainstream media, where sect-based religious authority, hate speech, and extremist viewpoints were expressed and reinforced. The contestations took the form of, for example, interviews with the Pakistani Taliban commanders who expressed violent extremist viewpoints on news shows uh, in interviews with journalists, or in the form of participants on political talk shows using religious justifications for their virulent authoritative stances on social issues. An example of this is the former civil servant, Oriyam Abul Jan, a regular on the political talk show circuit, uh, who launched a campaign to oppose a kite flying festival on the basis that it was blasphemous. 
Moreover, the commercial need to leverage the popularity of religious talk show hosts and participants began to undermine their religious credibility. For example, Ahmed Layakat appears on morning chat shows and cooking shows. He owns a fashion brand uh, and appears on style and fashion shows. His religious programming increasingly features entertainment segments such as quiz shows or game shows. So rather than creating Muslim public, such genre-bending programming starts to secularize them. Of course, oops, technical difficulty. Um, Interestingly, the careful production of new Muslim publics was also challenged by the ulama who participated in the religious talk shows. These emerged at a time, post 9-11, when then military ruler Pervez Musharraf, under pressure from the US, was seeking to clamp down on religious extremism and various religious groups and movements. Fearing a reduction of opportunities to proselytize and fundraise offline, Clerics, including from sects such as the Deobandis, which had previously condemned television as an un-Islamic medium, began to make clerics available to appear on air in the hope of using new media platforms to engage new followers and to compete against other religious sects that were pursuing similar strategies. As such, their moderated religious discourse on television was not necessarily in the service of creating inclusive Muslim publics, rather it was deployed as a recruitment strategy aimed at entrenching sectarian difference offline. Of course, audiences also challenge media outlets' attempts to define parameters for new Muslim publics. The most common form of this was the targeted consumption of the most sensationalist, divisive, or controversial material that did manage to make it on air. This was enabled by the simultaneous rise of video editing and video sharing platforms like YouTube, social media platforms, and mass SMS text messaging. So for example, a female caller's very titillating question about premarital sex, which appeared on Alim Online, was edited as a clip, widely shared, and remains one of the most watched segments of that show. As another example, in 2014, a senior cleric appearing on Amir Liaquit's show went on a rant against the Ahmadi community. The Ahmadis are a persecuted Muslim minority who are perceived by most Pakistanis to be heretics. Pakistan's constitution limits their religious freedoms and declares them to be non-Muslims. The cleric described them on air as the adversaries of Pakistan and Islam and urged all good Muslims to recognize them as foes, which was an implicit call to violence. This clip was shared online, transcribed and circulated by a text message and it made this virulent message one of the strongest to emerge from more than a decade of Alim online programming. And I'll come back to this theme in a minute. It's worth mentioning that the most sustained challenge to TV producers' attempts has been from those who feel excluded from the Muslim publics that they have tried to create on television. The growing popularity of religious talk shows was also accompanied by the rise of blogs, Twitter feeds, Facebook groups, etc., managed by and focusing on religious minorities such as the Ahmadis, Hindus, and Christians, as well as members of the Shia community who felt that these shows did not adequately acknowledge the persistence of sectarian violence against the Shia community. <coughs> these minority groups used the social media platforms to document incidents of sectarian violence, human rights abuses, and also to challenge and critique the views presented by clerics on religious talk shows. 
In other Muslim contexts, the emergence of publics and sites of challenge have resulted in such a fragmentation of the religious public sphere that it undermines the efforts to create new democratic forms of religious practice and debate. Schultz has captured this well on her work on sermon audio recordings in Mali. She writes that new media forms, quote, enable the move to public prominence of a variety of interpreters of Islam who seek to articulate an Islamic normativity as the basis of the common good. Paradoxically, the same processes that enhance the possibilities of Muslims of various backgrounds and pedigree to participate in public debate simultaneously undermine the appeal to Islamic scholarly consensus. While these processes strengthen these Muslims' possibilities to speak in public, they weaken their capacities to speak as the public. But Pakistan's unique religio-political history does allow for the concept of a Muslim public to hold. And that is one in opposition to the Ahmadi community. And so we've seen Amir Liaquat's popularity persist despite, or because of, his repeatedly hosting shows on which participating clerics from various backgrounds and religious traditions routinely declare the Ahmadi community to be wajibul couple or liable to be killed for their religious beliefs, or as previously described, term them the adversaries and enemies of Islam and Pakistan. Indeed, two of Layakut's broadcasts on this topic have, have directly resulted in the targeted assassin assassination of members of the Ahmadi community. In this aspect, religious media producers and consumers are backed by the state's efforts, the state's efforts to create a Muslim public, whether this is through upholding draconian blasphemy laws, retaining constitutional clauses that restrict Ahmadi's religious freedoms, blocking websites and Facebook pages maintained by these religious minorities, or more recently, through the robust implementation of a new cybercrime law against those accused of posting blasphemous <coughs> content online, which is disproportionately being deployed against religious minorities. In this regulatory context, Pakistan's new Muslim publics continue to gravitate to more extreme positions. Thank you very much for listening. Each of the speakers go, and then we'll have discussion at the end. Get up, David. Please join me in welcoming David Hesmondal. Hello. Exciting to be here. Thanks to the organizers. In contrast with that wonderfully fine-grained approach, this is more of a macro-historical perspective. In the context of the media industries, or cultural industries, and I'll treat those terms as interchangeable here, democratization is often used to refer to an increase in participation or access, either to making or consuming media products. But there's a more radical sense of the term democratization, where it's used to refer to change that brings about greater levels of social equality in collective decision making over some set of institutions, in this case the media. To what extent can we understand the last 20 years, the period in which digital networks have become ever more globally pervasive, as having seen meaningful democratization in that second sense I've just outlined of industrialized cultural production, distribution, and consumption. 
in order to approach that big question, I want to begin by outlining what the system of industrialised cultural production looked like before the changes wrought by digitalisation and other processes, focusing on four key features. First, the cultural industries of the late 20th century were dominated by institutions taking three main forms. First, large state-owned or state-funded uh, organisations such as the BBC in Britain, China Central Television, India's Doodoshan, and so on. Second, public corporations, by which I mean businesses whose shares are listed on stock exchanges. And thirdly, private companies, often controlled by families or wealthy individuals, including smaller companies sometimes known rather misleadingly as independent. <coughs> the growth of the first two of those categories were based on the, uh, the expansion of domestic consumer electronics industries and the provision of communication infrastructure. In some countries, public service media acted as a liberal, democratic, paternalist bulwark against the worst excesses of marketisation and authoritarianism. Second, the increasingly dominant marketised organisational forms of the late 20th century were underpinned by deeply problematic systems of property and labour. Revenues from the sale or use of copyrighted products went to rights owners. Who owned the rights in cultural works was determined by contracts between the various parties involved in which the aforementioned corporations were utterly dominant. The media industries became notorious for poor contract practices and often it was people from communities with little access to formal legal knowledge or advice that suffered, such as African-American musicians. Other workers were salaried and unionised but had little or no stake in ownership or access to royalties. What's more, as the media industries became associated with glamour and celebrity, this helped to feed an oversupply of willing workers, suppressing wages and working conditions for most workers and feeding inequalities of class, sex and ethnicity, because it tended to be better off and better educated people who were able to find the means to cope with the long periods of insecure employment necessary to gain access to the worthwhile media work. These features were challenged only by a small, idealistic, cooperative an alternative sector, and even that sector sometimes reproduced the dynamics of class inequality, racism and sexism apparent in the mainstream. A third feature of the late 20th century cultural industries was great asymmetry between mass audiences and a relatively small, though steadily growing group of professional producers. In the highly centralised media systems of that time, it was possible for relatively small numbers of media producers and celebrities to command enormous degrees of attention and wealth. Relatedly, the winner-take-all nature of cultural markets led to a system based on blockbusters, which dominated more and more cultural attention and cultural profit. 
And that blockbuster cultural economy significantly exacerbated international inequalities between the industrial core and the so-called peripheries, where there was much greater levels of uh, informal cultural economic activity. I forgot to advance the slide. <laughs> Fourth, the late 20th century cultural industry system was minimally overseen by socially empowered democratic institutions. Power was mainly exercised either by managers acting on behalf of wealthy owners and senior executives or by bureaucrats acting on behalf of authoritarian states or paternalist liberal democracies. Regulation increasingly became confined to corrections of so-called market failures. Justifications of this market system of media production rested on the idea that it gave people what they wanted, that it satisfied people's desires. But of course, what people want is to a large extent shaped by the communication media themselves. And people's desires exist in complex relation to their needs and their well-being. So I'm spending this time outlining these features because I think it's important not to look back nostalgically at the 20th century cultural industry system and see it as in any way meaningfully democratic in the sense I outlined at the beginning. The digital networks that were to play a key part in transforming the system I've just outlined emerged in the 70s, 80s and 90s. In North America and Europe, policymakers, governments and businesses were increasingly attracted to the information, communication and technology sector because that sector offered the chance to gain advantage over newly industrialising non-Western nations and businesses. At the same time, many activist groups saw computers as potentially contributing to the emancipation of information and knowledge. As various policy decisions paved the way for the opening up of digital networks beyond academic communities in the 90s, the World Wide Web's inspiring openness inadvertently provided the basis for an increasing use of the internet for commercial ends. Not much later, mobile telephony systems reached a point where they began to operate in effect as networks of connected microcomputers. A familiar story, but that's my version of it. How can we understand the effects of digital networks on the preceding four features of cultural industry <coughs> in terms of the sense of democratisation that I mentioned at the beginning. I'll outline four developments roughly corresponding to what I was talking about before. First, I think there are reasons to think that cultural production is now marked by a more diverse and mixed set of organisational forms. That's welcome. The media corporations have now been joined by IT-based corporations in a system of interlocking oligopolies. Due to a potent combination of marketisation and the claims for democratisation that I mentioned earlier. And these IT corporations have been subjected to only the most minimal of democratic accountability and oversight 
apart from some recent belated efforts. Second, in the first decade of the 21st century, the products of the IT industries began to erode the systems of intellectual property that had underpinned the 20th century cultural industries. But this hardly represented democratisation in the sense of meaningful, socially empowered democratic control over cultural production and consumption. Although there was a certain freeing up of the way in which people used copyrighted material, systems of copyright law and practice remained intact. And we forget that they spread throughout the world during that period where many people were celebrating the uh, hoped for erasure of intellectual property. Intellectual property was spreading as a cultural practice in a kind of neo-imperialist <coughs> way across the world. Advertising migrated from media companies to the IT sector. The rise of digital streaming services over the last five years represents the main way in which the challenge of digitalization to such notions of intellectual property has been contained. In music, online music streaming services such as Spotify, Apple Music, and those operated by China's Tencent represent the new core of global digital music revenues, offering consumers instant availability of vast catalogues of music, either paid for via advertising or a monthly <coughs> subscription fee. Similarly, in television, subscription video on demand services have challenged the linear schedule viewing that previously characterised television. The content on such streaming services is abundant and convenient. But in the era of streaming, the systems of rights and ownership underpinning the media industries are, if anything, more deeply embedded in technological systems and more removed from democratic debate and accountability than ever. They're characterised, I would say, and I'm doing a paper on this this afternoon, by an even greater opacity than that which existed before. Third, more and more people can now be producers and see their work distributed beyond their immediate locality, reducing the asymmetry between producers and audiences noted above. I think there is utopian potential in digital technologies in terms of the ability to share media. But I think it's important not to give the IT corporations excessive credit for that. That potential is built on the values of openness developed in academic uh, communities and beyond, uh, activist communities. Um, and it's also built on um, a constant effort to democratise the media industries uh, and information which runs counter to the values of the IT corporations. What's more, the blockbuster syndrome noted earlier is still alive and well, as a number of analysts have shown. That's that point. Fourth and finally, labour systems have certainly not been democratised. In the late 20th and early 21st centuries, there was in general, not just the cultural industries, um, a, a major backlash against the earlier gains made by labour 
in the 20th century. Labour conditions in the IT industries were particularly poor, apart from those for elite skilled employees. There's now an increasing expectation or assumption that young workers which should have to suffer very challenging working conditions, long hours on poor pay with constantly changing demands, including prolonged and often unpaid internships and multiple temporary jobs. Older workers are considered out of touch with the cultural literacy necessary for success in a, a new environment where turbulence and disruption are valued for their own sake. The influence of the expanding IT sector seems only to have made things worse in artistic labour markets and in the media industries with which they are partly intertwined. I have a couple of closing remarks to make and I'm going to go over there and get some water. So let me be clear about my own views and having made the uh, perhaps rather unwise decision to tell the entire story of the cultural industries in 12 minutes. I'm not now going to offer, in the remaining three minutes, a programme for radical democratisation of cultural production. Sorry to disappoint you if you believe that to be a requirement. My argument really is about the extent of democratisation and how we might understand this. But let me, let me uh, try and clarify one or two things that, uh, that perhaps are worthy of clarification here. Um, I think that a democratic state system is necessary for any social emancipation, including the democratisation of culture. But uh, uh, in, in, in terms of meaningful citizen control over the cultural economy, that's what I'm talking about, um, but this is not in any way about... Uh, controlled by an all-powerful, centralised, Soviet-style state. I consider well-regulated markets to be an essential part of a better future economy, cultural economy, under greater democratic control. I believe we very much need the richer mix of cultural institutions <coughs> that digital networks have played a part in helping to enable but real democratisation requires a much greater and more sustainable role for the non-profit cooperative sector and what some commentators call the social economy. We need bottom-up and top-down democratic institutions in the service of society, communities and individuals rather than growth and businesses. Education very much including cultural education as well as digital skills will be a vital part of reform. Underpinning my account are notions of democratic control that no doubt many people here and elsewhere consider unrealistic or even undesirable. Obviously we live in societies where democratic institutions fall a very long way short of the ideal of socially empowered control in the service of human flourishing that I'm arguing for here. Obviously, democratic and legal institutions have been captured by authoritarian populists across the world. In such circumstances, it's hard not to lose faith in democratic processes altogether. 
that to do so would in effect serve to join forces with those who put their trust in markets or authoritarian control as the only feasible ways of regulating production and consumption in modern societies, including neoliberals in the true sense of that overused word. That move would also, as well as being cynical, I believe it would be deeply dangerous. If culture matters, so does democratic control, real democratic control of the culture. Thank you. Please join me in welcoming Roberta Peterson. Uh, Roberta Peterson. Supposedly of mass media, we went from one to many. 
we're now in um, the age of many-to-many -many communication, the network era, all those kinds of things. And then suddenly I thought, well, golly, what's going on now is actually the age of the many-to-the-one, when you've got Facebook, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all communicating with you. And I thought, oh, wow, I've coined a phrase, and isn't this exciting? Because it could catch on. Then I did some reading. <laughs> and I found out that, in fact, Plasberg uh, Jensen, in a couple of articles, does actually use the phrase, the many to the one. But much to my great relief, he's thinking about it quite differently than I am. And he's thinking about it in a very important way, but in a way that I would say is kind of structural and perhaps a bit top-down. Um, here's references here. Um, yeah, it's, uh, for him it's all about the bit trails, right? Um, and it's uh, all about the metadata, it's all about the number of clicks, the lengths of stay, episodes watched, and so forth. But it's not about individuals. It's not about how the individuals respond, kind of in engaging in, interacting with, caught up in this network culture. And that's really what I'm interested in. And again, I apologize. You can think of it as sort of naive primitism and charming. Um, so yeah, it's me thinking about the many to the one, agency and lived experience. And in, in a way, I'm kind of starting by interrogating myself in a, in a way that my friend Matt Hills would term an autoethnography, which really elevates it in ways it doesn't deserve to be elevated. But in any sense, it's really kind of puzzled me. And that's, that's why the little question mark is there. I'm puzzled, right? Um, so I'm going to share some really private stuff with you guys now. So brace yourself, right? I want to show you a few of my interfaces. So that's me as defined by Netflix, right? This is me as defined by Spotify. Um, this is me as defined by Facebook. And of course, you see a cat in the middle and politics on either side. <laughs> That'll tell you a lot about me, right? And that's what really puzzles me. You know, um, as far as I understand it, with interfaces like Netflix, everything is entirely personalized. It's individualized, even right down to the thumbnails, right? They, the metadata can actually choose which thumbnail from a particular show to put on you that might appeal to you more. So that's sort of weird and wonderful and puzzling, especially if you're somebody as old as I am. This is a very new phenomenon. So I started to think about, well, how does this all make us think about our conceptions of audiences? And back in the one-to-many days, um, we sort of had two conceptions of audiences. So um, obviously mass media, mass audiences, couch potatoes, passive dupes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then from at least from a television studies perspective, because of course even in this supposed era of mass audiences, there was fragmentation in terms of different kinds of magazines and sort of that, and that, and that kind of thing. But at least in terms of television, um, we then went to multiple challenges, fragmented audiences, active audiences. Unfortunately, though, the only picture I could find of an active audience is kind of goes against what I'm saying, because that's sport, and it's actually sport that brings people together. Uh, the other problem with that picture is it shows England football fans being happy. So it's clearly an audience. But I thought I would just get a little 
patriotic fervor in there. Um, so yeah, this is, this is the way I was thinking. So if we're thinking about the many to the one, obviously this arises from technological convergence, uh, uh, network society, datafication, big data, and it results in what um, my esteemed colleague, Professor William Uricchio, refers to as the algorithmically curated, not algorithmically curious, but algorithmically curated audience. So what are we to make of the emergence of this new audience? Is it active or passive? Or do we no longer think that way? Do we need an entirely new conceptualization of audiences? So again, sorry again to refer to me. Um, I started thinking about my own subjectivity, right? Um, and what you got up there is again kind of my Spotify feed and what I like. I like um, Italian re Renaissance and Baroque composers. And Spotify will give me Italian Renaissance and Baroque composers till the cow come, cows come home. And I found some pictures, but they're all white guys in wigs, so they all look alike. But take it from me, these are all Italian composers, right? So what this tells me is I'm different from people who like pop music. I'm different from people who like Fogner. I can do a whole Bourdieu thing now about how this reinforces my subjectivity, makes me feel better and special and superior. Um, but, which I do, but then, but <laughs> <laughs> I won't now, but, but, but being an academic, um, I have to think about where does this reinforced subjectivity come from? So one of the academics, two of the academics, Israeli academics, I think, um, whom I was referring to earlier, um, refer to um, this reinforced subjectivity, what I'm calling reinforced subjectivity, they point out that it arises from building blocks of the self, a heavy load of data points representing discrete digital events, right? So there am I, very happy, but each of those is the result of a discrete digital event, right? So, um, to again, to again to pick up on uh, Fisher and the Jose, um, they say that um, <coughs> the algorithmic apparatus can be said to see individual users through data, right? Which is what Spotify does with me. But as my friend William points out, this data is only partial. Um, I don't know if you've written this anywhere. It was in an email, and I stole it, but I'm giving him credit. Um, and, and what he said was that the algorithm intervenes between the subject and the world, including some things and excluding others, right? But because it makes us happy in many ways, maybe we don't pick up on that. So is this all about an illusion of subjectivity, an illusion of mastery, indeed? Um, so what I'm really interested in, because I've actually studied inverted commas, real audiences, I'm interested in the construction of subjectivity between lived experience and algorithmic um, curation. And please correct me if I'm wrong and, and, and give me references. I've not really found anything that quite does what I'm kind of advocating that we do. So um, I want to talk both about why we should be interested in the construction of subjectivity and then maybe how we might go about researching it. So um, Sonia Livingston, in this very good article, um, 
suggests that audience research, which I guess kind of emerges from the Birmingham School in some ways, um, this certain approach to audience research, and obviously Henry Jenkins and others have contributed to that a lot, um, it's tended to favor voices from below. It's been inflected by cultural studies. Um, but Sonia thinks that media scholars are now really downplaying or excluding audiences and the significance of the life world. And it seems to me that even though all the work on metadata is absolutely wonderful, it is sometimes, it is top down rather than bottom up, and that we're in danger of ignoring the socio-cultural. In fact, we're in danger of stepping away from a model that both the media industries themselves have used to understand their audiences, but also that we as academics have used to understand our audiences. And it's a socio-cultural model that has connections to um, what Sonia refers to as the life world. And it's the severing of those connections from the life world, from lived experience, the reduction of audiences to tastes rather than demographic categories to a collection of data points that worries me. Um, and again, to pick up on Fisher and the Jose, um, in the really, this really good piece here, um, they echo Sonia's concerns about the evacuation of the social. And they've got a really nice um, periodization here where they say, um, Roughly, I, I put in the one to many and men, many to one. It roughly maps on, but we all know that periodizations can be difficult. Um, in the scientific ep episteme, um, roughly the one to many, the origins of both um, audience research and the ways that media industries understood their audiences, um, individuals were categorized as social categories. And obviously, this had problems. Um, so if you go back to the age of the mass audience at American television, um, the individuals who counted were white guys, white women. Um, okay, white women might be um, seen to be a discrete audience for daytime television, but African Americans, anybody else, was excluded from this notion of the audience. But at least on some level, it connected to notions of audiences and publics, and therefore was contestable, I suppose, you know? You could say, well, that's not true. And then um, when, you know, in the, in the 80s with audience fragmentation, certain other audiences that had been excluded were suddenly included primarily because of capitalism, but also obviously had implications for the public sphere and democracy et cetera, et cetera. The algorithmic episteme, that of the many to one, in my words, um, individuals become patterns of behavior or data patterns, or as I would put it, clusters of tastes, going back to my Italian composers. Um, so yeah, this really worries me, and I think connects to one of the primary themes, not only of this plenary, but of the, the entire conference, um, is, um, how do we, as academics, um, begin to think about the individual experience, to begin to think about a bottom-up analysis of, of, of the individual's lived experience of the ready-to-one mediascape? But actually, this raises some, I think, real methodological problems that I'll end with here. Um, so how do we capture that life world? How do we capture that 
lived experience. Um, well, obviously, we can do all the things we've always done. We can do quantitative stuff. We can do focus groups. We can do interviews. We can do ethnography. But if indeed those interfaces are unique, if we all know that audiences, we've always known that audiences are unique and that you always have to make generalizations, but now audiences are being constructed by the media industries themselves as unique and discrete individuals. Um, and this is where I think methodological problems come in. Um, so are we really talking about a subculture of one? But the academic game depends upon the ability to generalize. You can't just say, I've studied one person. You have to say, this case study speaks to that. So what does it mean? You know, If you look at me and my Italian composers and the way that Spotify presents them to me, and you put that with my Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to be a unique profile because of all these data points. Um, so I'm leaving you with the question, how do we deal with all that? OK, thank you. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Philip Napoli. Okay, as you can see, we're going to switch gears a bit and uh, talk about some issues I've been grappling with of, uh, late. As, um, I'm in a public policy school, and we are you know, trying to really understand how public policy in this digital sphere um, should be implemented. And you know, the comparative dimension that interests me a lot these days is, is looking back and trying to see what, if any, aspects of our traditional regulatory and policy frameworks for media uh, can inform us going forward. Um, when the tendency has been uh, to sort of perceive and to, on the, uh, you know, and to construct our are newer media institutions as not media institutions at all, really, but as tech companies, for example. Uh, we're past that now, I think. Uh, we're starting to see some interesting um, you know, policy developments, which um, uh, I'll, I'll talk about a bit. Uh, so we're in this interesting transitional period. Uh, and so that strain as, you know, on our sort of traditional regulatory apparatus uh, is, is what I want to talk about a bit. I want to start by actually talking about you know uh, a recent event that you know got some attention, but some aspects didn't get as much as I thought. Uh, uh, last year, AT and T and Time Warner um, successfully merged, um, and I, actually, my interest in this is not about the issue necessarily of media concentration per se, but. Uh, some aspect of this merger that went largely undiscussed. It was the world's uh, largest telecommunications company, uh, the world's third largest media company. Um, now, traditionally, and this is where the strain issue starts to come into play, uh, traditionally proposed media mergers in the U.S. undergo two distinct <laughs> reviews. One is handled by either the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice, and it's a competition analysis. And this 
where the focus has to stay exclusively on the economic implications of the merger. The second review uh, is handled by the Federal Communications Commission, and it is a broader public interest analysis. It can include economic dimensions, but this is also where broader concerns, political, cultural concerns, are in theory meant to come into play. Our concerns perhaps about diversity, about uh, a robust marketplace of ideas, etc. Um, and that is traditionally how it has worked. Now, um, certainly, you know, there's been plenty of critique that the FCC has for quite some time not really taken its public interest, um, you know, dimension into, you know, into account to the extent that uh, they should have. But for our purposes, it's important to know that that's the only place in this process where, however we choose to conceptualize and operationalize that notion of the public interest, that it is um, brought to bear. Um, quiz. AT&T and Time Warner merger did not undergo an FCC public interest review, despite the size of it, as I just described. And the question now, Jeff, I bet you know the answer, um, <laughs> why not? Oh, good, I stumped everybody. The answer is because no broadcast licenses were involved. Time Warner actually owned one television station and they sold it strategically right when the proposed merger was announced. Now, I want to let that sit there, man, because I mean, what, you sh what I'm hoping everyone is doing is going, broadcast licenses? <laughs> Who gives a crap about broadcast licenses? Um, but this is where we are right now. That is how far behind our, and, you know, our notion, you know, our, our construction of how the public interest should apply uh, to our media space is from the realities of how news and information is produced, disseminated, uh, and consumed. So now this, you know, this strikes me as very interesting for, as you may have been following over the past couple of weeks, you know, in the wake of, I'm forgetting his name now, at the Washington Post editorial, suddenly the question of should we break up Facebook uh, is on the policy agenda. It's been percolating for quite some time, but now there is a lot of discussion happening about that. And as one would predict from this scenario that we've just described, um, the debate is becoming focused on this very narrow and barely really relevant in many ways in the grand scheme of things, question of does Facebook have a monopoly in the online advertising market? Or, more importantly, this goes to these fascinating issues of market definition that have characterized media policy for years. You know, uh, you know, a, you know, is it even appropriate to define the online advertising market as its own distinct market? Do they have a monopoly? You know, what you know in, in advertising, in the advertising market generally? Because if the, you know, the question of whether or not to break up uh, Facebook is purely one of economics, of questions of monopoly, of the kind of you know questions that the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department are um, you know able to address. All the other concerns we might have about a Facebook or, say, a proposed, pretend it's not AT&T and Time Warner, pretend it's Facebook and Twitter, um, without a public interest analysis, we are you know, focused on, whether we like it or not, on the simple question of, of what is the economic implication, what are the economic implications of that merger, and we're tasked with you know, answering the question of, well, you know, how much does it cost to advertise, and is it going to go up if these two companies merge, which, again, who gives a crap? 
mean, some of us. But I mean, there are much bigger questions that I think concern us when we think about uh, platform companies and, and how they uh, and how they operate in our public sphere. Uh, but anyway, to mention Time Warner only, uh, David just met us in your problem, which is I keep talking and I'm moving my slides. Um, they sold it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but this, you know, and what this takes us all the way back to then is this idea that uh, the scarcity of the broadcast spectrum uh, was our, really our founding rationale for media regulation, and that sort of those unique characteristics of spectrum uh, still serve as. Um, the mechanism by which we um, impose regulation in the media sector. Uh, so, the interesting thing about this scenario is when you have a scenario in which no broadcast licenses are involved, uh, any notions of the public interest are essentially irrelevant going forward. And for me, this raises the bigger question, which I want to spend a little time on today, uh, which some of this may be obvious, but talking about the relationship that we've had traditionally in this country between motivations and rationales for media regulation and policy, because they are distinctly different things. Why do we regulate media? Traditionally, there's been a host of reasons. This isn't a, a you know, comprehensive list, but it's been things like this. Protecting children from adult content, protecting adults from content they might find offensive, competition, certainly, diversity, localism. Some of these terms may mean more to you than others. I'm trying to go fast, because I know uh, we want to leave some time for discussion. Uh, access. So these are the things that have traditionally compelled regulatory interventions. But in, in our country, with the strong First Amendment tradition that we have, as compelling as any of these interests, these motivations may be, they often uh, need to be accompanied by um, a compelling rationale. That is, a technologically specific and derived justification for pursuing these motivations uh, in a way that may impose on First Amendment freedoms. Right? So this is the relationship we have had uh, as we approach you know, for media regulation policy in our country. Uh, motivations may not be enough. You need to have a rationale that can sort of justify a relaxation of a, a, a traditional strict approach, traditionalist approach to the, to the First Amendment. And these are, needless to say, very vulnerable to technological evolution. Right. So you know. Spectrum scarcity, this idea that spectrum is a scarce resource and there are not enough people, uh, there's not enough room for everyone who wants to broadcast to broadcast. Well, uh, plenty of legal scholars, economists, etc., have made a career over the, over the decades of showing all the reasons why the scarcity rationale uh, is, is flawed from a logical standpoint. Um, yeah, you know, it's applied uh, to broadcasting uh, satellite uh, and it's, you know, like I said, you could say, well, shoot, all goods are scarce. So how does that make sense? You could say, well, of course it's scarce if you're giving it away for free, which is how we operate with broadcast licenses. You could argue that, well, it's not as scarce as it used to be because think of all the other ways people have to deliver messages now that they didn't before. So in any case, so what I want to do quickly is to give you an overview of, of the different rationales. Again, I don't think it's a comprehensive list, but which different media technologies they have applied to. Uh, public resource is something separate in many ways, which is the idea, not that it's scarce, but that's that something that is owned by the public. Uh, that it's something, and therefore, institutes a quid pro quo relationship that can involve 
giving up some First Amendment freedoms in order to serve broader notions of the public interest. That is applied also to broadcasting and to satellite uh, and also to cable. Uh, when your cable companies would be digging up your streets and sidewalks, uh, they're using public rights of way. And in exchange for that, in the past, they've had to do things like uh, provide your community with public access channels and things of that sort. Uh, pervasiveness. This one is very interesting. It's an oldie, uh, but uh, it has applied again to uh, broadcasting and cable. Um, and there was an effort to apply it back in the with Communications Decency Act back in the 90s to the internet, but it did not fly. But pervasiveness is the idea that a certain medium is uniquely pervasive and therefore um, should be regulated uh, a bit more um, aggressively. Uh, that goes back to the famous uh, Pacifica case where someone was exposed to profanity on the radio. And it was, you know, somehow radio is intrusive is actually the term that was used. Now, if all this is starting to sound like, hey, this is sort of reminding me of some of the discussion that's happening now around, say, live streaming uh, and some of the self-imposed um, uh, policies that, that platforms are, are, are adopting, but also what some governments uh, in Australia and New Zealand are moving forward with, uh, sort of is a reflection of this idea of, of pervasiveness as a characteristic of the medium that thus compels a different treatment from a regulatory uh, policy standpoint. Uh, reasonably ancillary. This one has applied uh, to cable television, and this is this idea that, well, it's ancillary, it's sort of a, an important mechanism by which people access the regulated medium. So the, in the early days of cable, it was primarily a way that we access broadcast television. And just that relationship compelled the imposition of certain regulations upon cable that looked like the regulations that were imposed on broadcast television. So the idea is just to give you a sense of you know, all these types of regulation, uh, these types of rationales that we have employed. Uh, and the important point here, of course, is that you know, at least at this point, very, you know, there has been very little effort uh, to apply these to our um, newer digital platforms, social media in particular. And you know, many would argue that none of them really do apply um, all that well. Uh, so these are some of the issues I'm dealing with. Here's the shameless plug part, uh, but Ian already helped with that. Uh, that was nice. Um, that we're trying to tackle in, in this book project where we look at our old uh, established legacy media models and see what can or cannot potentially actually guide us going forward. Uh, so, you know, could you argue, as I mentioned, is social media uniquely pervasive? Um, you know, I think there's room for a compelling argument there. Um, could you argue that it's ancillary in terms of it's a key mechanism by, we, by which we access content produced by uh, legacy media? Um, this is the one, this is the teaser for uh, the crackpot idea I flesh out a bit more in my later session today. Maybe we should be thinking of user data like spectrum, that in the aggregate our data represent a public resource. There's all this debate about is our, our, is our data our property or not? Well, maybe it's this kind of collective property and being utilized uh, in, a, in a way uh, that you know, is maybe comparable to how the public ownership of the spectrum, uh, publicly owned spectrum, has been utilized. Uh, so you know, uh, these are some ways that we could potentially sort of explore more deeply if and to what extent 
our established ways of thinking about media uh, may be able to guide us going forward. Uh, or maybe we need to start coming up with some new ones. Because again, for, you know, for better or for worse, our model is one in which regulatory motivations are insufficient to take any action. Uh, if you've compared what we've done in our country compared to what other countries have done in response to issues like violence, like disinformation, etc., you're seeing that uh, firsthand. Uh, and so absent compelling rationales, we're not going to see anything happen. So this is our sort of project in many ways, uh, going forward to figure out how that relationship is going to evolve. Uh, so I'll stop there. Thanks. Thank you all very much. I'd like to invite the panelists up onto the stage. It would be great. And uh, we have until 12.30. Maybe we'll go five minutes over. Uh, if people have to leave, I understand. That's fine. Uh, and I would just, as our panelists are getting settled, uh, just make one brief comment and then encourage, I would like to open it up to the audience. And one thing I'd like to say is sometimes as we travel around the world, uh, we get asked, what, what is comparative media studies? Like, what's the idea there? What, why, why is it comparative? And it's an idea that's always uh, inspired me. I learned it from Henry Jenkins and William Arricchio, David Thorpe, and some of the people instrumental in getting this department started. Uh, that it, as we've seen in all these talks today, media is this complicated thing. It has this long history. Uh, it keeps evolving. Uh, in ways that requires a comparative perspective to make sense of it. Uh, that we need to think across media platforms, we need to think across national contexts, uh, and we need to think across historical periods. Uh, and I think what makes a conference like this uh, so inspiring to me is that it's a space for interdisciplinary conversation. Uh, that it's not a single method that is going to help us fully understand media in all its forms. We've seen this in these talks today. Uh, but instead, what we also need is a space for uh, cross-disciplinary dialogue, collaboration, and debate uh, to really apply the insights of humanities and social sciences uh, to real-world problems uh, with specific uh, approaches uh, that also deal with broader theoretical issues. And I think. I applaud today's panelists for really uh, bringing that home in terms of religious talk shows, audience gatification, what is democracy when we think of new digital platforms, and what are the rationales and ideas uh, for regulation as well. So uh, please give a hand for our wonderful panelists. Since we have a short amount of time, I'd like to try getting a few questions from the audience first before we start immediately answering. Is, would that be okay? Let's get uh, a number of ideas on the board and let's just start us off. And please introduce yourself, if you'd be so kind. Yeah, do we want a microphone? Yes, I, please. I'm hard of hearing and forgot my hearing aid, so okay, that would ahead. be very useful. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sarah Lee Kaplan. I'm a professor of media studies at the case of AT&T and Time Warner, and there is something that relates also to what other speakers were saying, which is um, the new merger has its global consequences. And one of the consequences is, so it's not just American case, uh, is the fact that AT&T is now selling Time Warner's television in Europe. 
in Central Europe in particular, and the main interest is actually coming from Chinese funds. So we might have a very uh, specific consequence of this case, which happened actually in USA, and not, did not involve public interest story, uh, for throughout the world, the repercussions for the Central Europe, for countries like Czech Republic, Slovenia, Croatia, Romania, and so on, might be, I must say, very interesting if actually a Chinese company takes over that. That thing, and so if AT&T will only look for, of course, a larger amount of money and not any other consideration like public interest, we might have a really interesting consequences. So, just as a comment on the different aspects of these stories, which I go into. Thank you very much. I, I'm sure Philip has things to say. But let's keep the microphone moving. There are a few more things. Start here and then come up. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is Valerie uh, Giovanni. Um, and I have a comment question for um, Roberta Pearson. Um, I love the question on subjectivity, um, and my presentation will be on intersubjectivity. So this is kind of where I'm going and how we can you know, reconceive um, uh, subjectivity. How do we, as academics, address it given new media platforms? Um, how do we think of individual lived experience is, I think, one of the questions. Is there a way to think bottom up? Um, and so I just want to briefly bring up this kind of interesting evolution in psychoanalysis, um, if we're going to think cross-disciplinary. Okay. So we, we begin with Freud in this like ego, self, individuated self, isolated, um, um, working through our own power to um, you know, defense mechanisms. We have movies like Psycho that illustrate aesthetically for us these kind of defense mechanisms that are through ourselves to cure our psyche, right? But then in psychoanalysis, after Freud, there's object relations um, through Melanie Klein, and then it goes to intersubjective psychotherapy in Dr. Orange, um, Don Orange, for example, or um, several others. So it ends up going from this isolated ego into an intersubject, right? So like um, a personhood that's always contextual, um, in um, ethics, we have these conversations of relational ethics. Um, epistemology, we have standpoint epistemology. Um, so maybe, have you ever thought of um, demolishing or rethinking subject, subjectivity to something like intersubjectivity? Um, reducing the, the monolithic, right? Just me. Um, and, then, and then thinking how um, different medias can always work through the spaces of, I like Italian music, I like uh, opera, but then not just think of Italian opera, but then somehow work in the in-between to figure out new configurations, right? So you're, mm -hmm. it's not a reductive kind of, I don't know, so no, this question That's is really helpful. Thank you. Wonderful, yeah, great question. Let's get a couple more questions and then we'll pass over to the panelists. Thanks, I'm Tiziano Bonini from University of Siena, Italy. And I have a couple of questions for uh, David Asmondag and Philip Napoli. Um, uh, David uh, talked about the democratization, the possibilities of democratization uh, in the cultural industries. And uh, I would like to ask you both, uh, could, uh, which, which could be the role of public service media um, you know, for these uh, uh, ecosystem or platform is uh, for this platformized ecosystem of media. 
because uh, in my paper this afternoon I talked about the possibility of uh, publishing these media as platforms, as online platforms, and what and I try to define them. But I maybe do you think that we can we need a public service media uh, platforms or the turn of public service media into online platforms guided by uh, public values instead of market values? Uh, or is too late or who don't care? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I know that in Europe and the United States have right. media different kind of um, frames, but is it too late? Is it relevant? Is it, is, is it does it contribute to the possible democratization? Great, great question. Do we have a question for humor? Is it that this I, I do have one, but, oh. but please. No, no, I think he just put his hand. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Yusuf. Um, my question. Uh, you know, typically when we think about the sort of uh, spread of religious uh, satellite television in the Muslim world, we're often thinking about the influence of the Gulf countries and Wahhabist uh, cultural, you know, Wahhabist variant. And I'm just wondering if you could comment a little bit on um, the the place of the, you know, the, the Gulf in, in, in Pakistan and to what extent the, specifically I guess the Wahhabist or Salafist uh, tradition does it have a degree of monopoly at all, uh, in a, in a, or or is it really fragmented as, as you suggest? Thank you. Careful. Why don't we go to the panelists now because we're running out of time. Phil, which first in the order of the questions? Well, part is more of a statement. Sorry to or say aloud on that one. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll go next. Is this this is working? Okay. Yeah. Well. I did sort of go through the whole talk without ever defining what I meant by subjectivity, didn't I? Because that was bad. Um, it's because I don't really know. And I'm, not, and I'm kind of, as I said, I, I sort of started with myself. But as we all know, uh, the subject consciousness, highly contested, different disciplines are going to talk about it differently. So you come at it from a psychoanalytic perspective. Marx would come at it from an economic perspective, etc., etc. Um... I guess all I would say is um, this does seem to me somehow different. Um, but if I always tell my students, if you say it's different, then you have to that you have to establish an historical baseline by which by, by which you're measuring that difference, right? Um, so yeah, I guess if I were to pursue this kind of project, you're absolutely right. It would have to start with a lot of thinking about some of those most fundamental assumptions. Um, I guess, yeah, where does it, I mean, again, to refer to my friend William, um, who's done some wonderful work uh, in, in which he argues that, um, do you just want to say it? Are you, are you happy for me to paraphrase you? <laughs> he argues that um, there is a kind of epistemic shift um, away from the kind of construction of the individual in uh, Renaissance perspective, right? Um, so that, what is it, San Marco or the Obama? San Marco, so that if you put photo, photo, okay. Um, if you put together San Marco from multiple perspectives, right, that really overturns the notion of the constructed subject of the unique perspective, right? But I sort of thought, well, I was gonna flip William on his head and say, well, actually, um, the, that while the way he says it challenges that kind of unique Renaissance construction, what I'm thinking is um, 
that the algorithm of the curated audience also reinforces your subjectivity and your sense of individuality because I guess again in a Berlian perspective, you know you're different, right? Maybe that's it. So I guess, but you're absolutely right that um, it's all those fundamental questions that, that we need to be asking and, and I guess from multiple disciplinary perspectives. So thank you for that. Uh, thanks, Tiziano, for that question about public service media. I absolutely see public service media as playing um, a vital part in maintaining the shards of democratic accountability that have been there. Is that gone dead? I didn't do it. Uh, maintaining the shards of democratic accountability that are, are there um, in the, the system as it stands. There's no doubt that public service media, as surely uh, everyone here knows, face massive challenges from the rise of online platforms. Uh, there are, as I understand it, uh, very um, creative responses being developed. So colleagues who are here were at a conference in New York um, earlier this week about that. Um, uh, I mentioned in my talk the kind of the problem of paternalism in the public service tradition. I think there's an opportunity to, um, to have a more radical notion of public service in this changing environment, but there's no doubt that there are serious threats. I just wanted to say something about the first question, if I may, uh, 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 on, on the back of that. Um, there's no doubt that the AT TNT Time Warner uh, merger, like so many other mega mergers before, has serious implications in, its, in itself and as part of a more general pattern of corporatization. Um, I guess you know what I was trying to do in my talk was get away from um, what you know in other work I've called the Herbert Schiller Robert McChesney tradition of thinking about um, about political economy uh, and about the economics of culture where there's perhaps a little bit too much emphasis on the undoubtedly negative effects of corporations. I think it can lead to a, um, a, a hopelessness. Uh, I, I don't mean that's true of, of Schiller or Chesney, I just mean within a certain way of thinking about, uh, about cultural economy. Is that potential problem? I, th I think we need to turn to other kinds of uh, democratic theory uh, including theories about the democratisation of the economy. Uh, a lot of what I was talking about this morning was inspired by the work of Gibson Graham, the feminist geographers, who very much take that line I've just outlined, um, and also the work of Eric Cole and Wright, the great uh, sociologist uh, who's envisioning real utopias project, uh, has been an inspiration to many people. Uh, he died earlier this year, uh, which was very sad. So just some thoughts there on the, not only public service media, but also the power of the corporations. Thanks for the question. So the, one of the reasons that Gulf media is not as influential is because of the language barriers. So South Asian, Far East, the Arabic language programming cannot resonate with local publics. Um, but what has been interesting is the way in which uh, sort of Wahhabi, Salafist groups in the Gulf are seeking to counteract the trends that I was describing. 
And it is by trying to push back at the fact that as we, uh, religious discussions have moved out of the physical spaces of mosques and madrasas onto online platforms and television, which are open to broad audiences, and therefore, uh, as I've described, increasingly moderate, inclusive, tolerant, trying to put forward a sort of softer uh, dialogue-based discussion. What they are actually doing is providing funds and other support <coughs> to the traditional offline practices to ensure that that hardline position and the sectarian positions, etc., um, remain are, are reinforced and remain lively and are still able to compete against what's happening uh, in the virtual spaces. So you see increasing amounts of funding for things like media training so that uh, groups can produce uh, old-fashioned CDs, pamphlets, um, you know, that kind of more localized media, which takes much more extremist and hardline positions along uh, the ideologies. The more interesting thing that's happening, though, is, is the reverse, which is that while Arabic media does not broadcast into South Asia or in Pakistan, for example, but local television channels all have landing rights in the Gulf, and South Asian diasporas who are based in the Gulf start watching the stuff and start thinking in more moderated liberal ways because they don't have access to the physical hardline stuff that's happening in mosques and madrasas. All they're getting is the nice stuff coming through television, just a little bit softer. And they start then within the Gulf to question some of the more authoritarian positions that they see there. And so these diaspora communities are starting to be seen as a source of threat and questioning of religious authority in an unexpected way. And maybe we can just finish up with one last comment from Philip. How should we regulate social media? If, and maybe if, there's not, if that's too broad a question, is there one social media platform right for a certain kind of regulation that you see would be a good direction? You notice. Oh, that's only one more to count, so let's try that one. I'm very strategically focused on the question of, maybe this one's better. And maybe this was a, you know, subconsciously ducking the, what specific things could, should we do, rather than instead focusing on the, well, how could we justify them if we do them? <laughs> um, so, you know, so the quick version being, yeah, I have not already answered that question. Uh, but if you're to put me on the spot, actually, I, I am more in favor of, and this is tricky because it's a, God, it's a damn if you do, damn if you don't, a, a sort of government-mandated self-regulatory model where there's some sort of independent entity that is created from multiple stakeholder groups that has actual authority over the sort of, what is it at this point, these unilateral decision-making that platforms can make. Um, I go into it in, in, in another paper where I sort of I use a model of what we have in audience measurement, the Media Rating Council. It's a sort of quasi-governmental body, but in that case, it doesn't have the authority and actually doesn't want it to actually make their decisions have, uh, you, know, you know, have a force of, of behind them. So something in that sphere, because I, I, I think when people do say that yeah, government doesn't seem to be the best, especially in this day and age, it would be a very scary thing, right, to uh, imagine. Um, so one of the things I talk about in the book is I'm, I'm writing the book of the assumption that it takes a really long time for academic ideas to impact policy. And I'm hoping by the time any of the ideas I have in this book do, um, something will have changed in the government. <laughs> so I don't want them getting taken up too quickly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure there's more questions. Yes, thank you.